Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care Series, which is a multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of stellar fellow leads and expert faculty from several programs led by a series co-chairs, Dr. Mark Belkin, Dr. Eunice Dugan, Dr. Karin Desai, and Dr. Yoav Karpachev. In this episode, we will learn all about cardiac arrest and eCPR from Cardio Nerd Academy Fellow and University of Minnesota Cardio Nerd Ambassador, Dr. Julie Power, and faculty expert, Dr. Jason Bartos. Stay with us. Friends, before we dive into this phenomenal episode, I'm thrilled to introduce one of our FIT trialists. As a reminder, the Cardio Nerd's Clinical Trials Network was founded with a mission to pair equitable trial enrollment with FIT personal and professional development. We are proud to have so far recruited 15 CardioNerds FIT trialists and PI mentors from across America and Canada to support Paraglide HF with mentorship from lead PI Dr. Robert Mentz. The FIT trialists are nominated by side PIs for their accomplishments, academic inclinations, and of course, their nerdiness. And I am so proud to welcome our FIT trialist from Mount Sinai, Dr. Jason Feynman, who is nominated by side PI Dr. Anu Lala. Jason, welcome to the Cardinals family. Would you please introduce yourself and share what you're most excited about joining for this program? Thank you and proud to be a member of it. So my name is Jason. I'm a current first year cardiology fellow at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. I was a medicine resident at Mount Sinai beforehand and did my medical school training at Rutgers in New Jersey. Currently very interested in pursuing a career in advanced heart failure and transplantation after general cardiology fellowship. It really is an incredible opportunity and honor to be involved with this group to gain a better understanding of what goes into a randomized clinical trial. Being able to participate in it at a fellow level is something that I don't think a lot of individuals get an opportunity to do during their cardiology training. The resources that go into this is something that I did not understand as well prior to getting involved with this group. But even in our short time together thus far, being able to meet with Dr. Mentz and many of the other incredible PIs in this group, the way that they have already started to mentor us, allow us to really get a better understanding of what a career involved in clinical research is like is something that I find to be incredibly rewarding. And also to try to really impact some of the inequities in clinical trial research, making sure that we are equitable in who we're reaching out to for our clinical trials and making sure that we enroll a diverse patient population that accurately reflects the patients that we hope to treat in our future are some of the goals that I have for participating with this group. That was great, Jason. And we very much share those goals as part of the wider group. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the mentorship that we are all getting from the PIs of this trial. You know, you specifically are working so closely with Dr. Anulala, and she's contributed to a variety of Cardinals projects so far. And we've just really enjoyed working with her in numerous capacities. You know, I'd I'd love to hear from your perspective. You've been at Mount Sinai for residency. You're working close with Dr. Lala now. Tell us a little bit about what that relationship has been like. Dr. Lala is a huge mentor of mine and really is an inspiration, not just so for myself, but for all of the general cardiology fellows and advanced heart failure fellows as well. I certainly remember very early on in my medicine training, probably even before I was certain that I was going to go into cardiology, I was an intern on the cardiology service and she was our attending for some of our heart failure patients. And the thing that struck me the most, besides certainly her clinical knowledge, the way that she carries herself, and now knowing her better, all the incredible research that she's involved with on top of her clinical duties, is really the way that she gets to meet, know, and understand and interact with the patients that she is caring for. The way that she gets to know them on a personal level and understand what drives them, what their motivations are. And knowing that understanding what your patient's motivations are is really the way that you're going to be able to best impact their care. And a lot of the things that I saw from her drove me not only to cardiology, but to advanced heart failure as well. I've found that it's one of those fields that you get to really make a very strong impact in your patient's life and being able to follow them through longitudinally. You know, there were patients that I saw when I was an intern in 
really extremis decompensated heart failure and got to follow them through their advanced heart failure course, ultimately to either durable mechanical support and now ultimately transplantation. And seeing the positive impact that you're able to have, not just in a short period of time, but also to give them their livelihood back. Because certainly a lot of times we see these patients when they're in the hospital, but that's not where they want to spend their time. And getting to see them in the outpatient setting as well, the joy that they have being able to do just simple day-to-day things that the rest of us take for granted has really been an incredible opportunity. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Jason. What a rewarding story to see and the ways in which you can impact your patients are incredible. And what an amazing role model uh, Dr. Lala is. We really are so privileged to have this opportunity to work with and learn from all of the Paraglide PIs. So Jason, thank you again so much for joining as a fit trialist. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Cardinals family and just very excited for the work we'll do together. I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to everything that is to come. Jason, it was amazing meeting you. Special thank you to Cardi Nerds intern Shivani Reddy for the amazing audio editing for this episode. Remember, Cardi Nerds is an independently fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to collect free CME using the link in the episode description. And do be a nerd. Spread the word by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, by telling your friends, family, and colleagues about the show. And now, time to get nerdy. Hey, Cardio Nerds. My name is Yoav Karpinchev, and I'm a current third-year cardiology fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm one of the chairs of the Cardio Nerds Critical Care Series. I'm excited to be here today with Amit Goyal and Daniel Ambender, and it is our pleasure to bring you this installment of the series. In this episode, we will discuss cardiac arrest, post-arrest care, and DCPR. Today, we have CardioNerds Academy Fellow and Ambassador from the University of Minnesota, Dr. Julie Power, with us to discuss the topic. Julie is a third-year cardiology fellow and chief fellow and she'll be training in interventional cardiology at the University of Minnesota next year. We're so happy to have you on this episode with us, Julie. Thanks, Yoav. What a delight to be here discussing a topic near and dear to me, not only as a future interventionalist, but also as a proud fellow at the University of Minnesota with faculty that are pioneering management of cardiac arrest and eCPR through our Center for Resuscitation Medicine and Minnesota Mobile Resuscitation Consortium, as seen in the recently published arrest trial by our very own Drs. Yiannopoulos, Bartos, and Rabindran. I feel very lucky to be at a program with this exposure and even more excited to be here today to talk about it with the experts in the field. And on that note, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce an expert in this area, Dr. Jason Bartos. Dr. Bartos is a Minnesota native who earned his medical degree from Stanford University School of Medicine and completed internal medicine residency there as well. He moved to the University of Minnesota in 2012, where he completed fellowships in cardiovascular medicine, critical care cardiology, and interventional cardiology. He currently serves as critical care and interventional cardiology faculty. Dr. Bartos has earned multiple accolades as Lily High Scholar for the Cardiovascular Division at the University of Minnesota, the AHA and Resuscitation Science Symposium Young Investigator Award in 2015, 2017, and 2018, and the University of Minnesota Medical Center Cardiovascular Fellowship Teacher of the Year Award in 2018 and 2019. Welcome, Dr. Bartos. Thank you, Julie. And thank you, everybody, for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here nerding out with all of you about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart that I spend a lot of time thinking about. So looking forward to the discussion today, and thank you so much. So we are going to start with a case that Dr. Bartos and I managed together. We had a 37-year-old woman with a past medical history of hypertension and 20-pack-year history of nicotine dependence who presented to a local ER with anterior lateral STEMI. She had been short of breath at home and collapsed where her family started CPR and called 911. EMS arrived and she was found to be in ventricular fibrillation. She was shocked once and ROSC was achieved. EKG at that time showed an anterolateral STEMI. She was brought to the ER and she was initially stable, but then began to complain of chest pain and shortness of breath. She deteriorated into VT and became unresponsive. CPR was started and she received 10 shocks. Given her refractory VT, the decision was made to place the patient on VA ECMO by our mobile ECMO team in the local ER. 
She then underwent cardiac cath with PCI to the proximal LAD. She was then transferred to the University of Minnesota Cardiac ICU and ECMO service. Wow, Julie, what an incredible and valiant effort by all of the teams involved in her care. And I really hope she pulls through. You know, I'd love to hear more about your mobile ECMO unit. It sounds like an incredible service. But first, let's put her presentation into context. Unfortunately, she's not alone in what must have been a terrifying experience for her and her family. Friends, approximately 350,000 adults in the United States experienced out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in 2015. Only about 10% of these patients survived their initial hospitalization. The key drivers of successful resuscitation from out-of-hospital arrest are lay rescuer cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, and public use of an automated external defibrillator, or AEDs, in the field. Survival rates from out-of-hospital arrest vary dramatically between U.S. regions and different EMS agencies. As one example, the eCPR program at the University of Minnesota has over a 40% survival rate in patients with out-of-hospital arrest and refractory VFib based on data published in the arrest trial. Yeah, I mean, that's actually quite fascinating. And again, really excited to have people from University of Minnesota here with us today. You know, getting ROSC always feels like a small victory and gives us caregivers a ton of adrenaline. But we also know that it's really just the beginning of the patient's journey, especially if they just arrived to the hospital. After initial stabilization, care of critically ill post-arrest patients hinges on hemodynamic support, mechanical ventilation, temperature management, diagnosis and treatment of underlying causes, and diagnosis of treatment of seizures, vigilance for identification and treatment of infections, and management of the critically ill state of the patient. It's really tedious at times, but really important. Unfortunately, many out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients will survive the initial event, but will eventually die because of neurological injuries. Thus, much of post-arrest care focuses on mitigating injury to the brain. Dr. Bartos, what are some of the tools that we have that can help mitigate neurological injury? Yeah, you all have touched on really critical aspects and multiple aspects of the post-arrest care for any patient with cardiac arrest. And like the case that Julie described, these patients with refractory cardiac arrest often have an average of an hour of CPR, multiple shocks, and they can have trauma as well as injury from the ischemic event. So really the post-arrest care needs to focus on all aspects of the recovery of these patients. For people with refractory cardiac arrest in particular, but really in all patients with cardiac arrest, the foundation of recovery is hemodynamic stability. And that's where the ECMO and eCPR comes in for those patients to provide that hemodynamic foundation so that you can then provide the other services to recover the patient through all of their other injuries. Beyond that hemodynamic foundation is things, as you mentioned, like seizures, neurologic recovery. That's the number one killer of patients who do achieve ROSC or at least admitted to the hospital, over half of them, and in many cohorts, around 75% of them or more are dying of neurologic injury. And so the monitoring and prognostication is critical, as well as any treatments you can provide to alleviate that neurologic injury and prevent injury. In addition, the cardiac injury is obviously important as well. And we don't want to have decreased cardiac function in the long term, nor do we want hemodynamic stability in the short run. And so treatments to provide that hemodynamic stability and cardiac recovery are also important. But then every other system, and I often refer to these patients as having pan-system organ failure. So there's pulmonary injury, there's liver injury, kidney injury. All of those require very well-delivered and thought-out critical care strategies like any other patient in the ICU, but with expertise in particular for those patients with cardiac arrest. And then the last thing that I think is less understood and less well uh, observed in patients with cardiac arrest is the trauma component. And we see that in a very extreme way in the, the refractory patients because of that one hour of CPR. Pneumothoraces, hemothoraces, they may fall down the stairs when they arrest. Uh, a number of traumatic issues that can arise and really screening these patients. And you've seen a trend in recent years toward pan scanning, sort of treating these patients on arrival to the hospital like a trauma patient. And we're really moving that direction of this population as well. So if you think about all of that together, the number one component that you need or number one factor you need in a good post-rest care program is a multidisciplinary team who can take care of all of that. And while there are many people who are very good at taking care of cardiac arrest patients, no one person can do everything with this patient population. And you have fundamental expertise in cardiac arrest in a core group, but you still need to bring in uh, other practitioners to provide these other resources. So back to our patient. In addition to VA ECMO, the decision was made to cool our patient to 34 degrees Celsius for 24 hours. 
Potential benefits of deeper cooling include a decrease in metabolic demand, decreased intracranial pressure, and suppression of seizure activity. Well, that sure sounds like a lot of benefits, but of course, everything we do has a trade-off. Julie, would you mind reviewing the downsides of targeted temperature management that we should remain wary of in considering this? Of course, Amit. Targeted temperature management does have significant risks that need to be discussed and on the forefront of our minds. Let's cover five issues. First is clotting. Core temperatures below 35 degrees Celsius impede the clotting cascade and platelet function, though this has not been demonstrated by in vivo studies. Because of this, if a patient develops significant non-compressible bleeding while undergoing targeted temperature management, consideration should be given to actively rewarming the patient. The next issue is shivering. Shivering is a natural response to hypothermia, and suppression of shivering is crucial for targeted temperature management. Strategies for suppression of shivering include propofol infusion, fentanyl, and versed infusions. We can use midazolam or versed instead of propofol if the patient is on multiple pressors and hypotension is an issue. However, we need to take into consideration that hypothermia reduces clearance and excretion of midazolam, so the patient may require time to metabolize in subsequent hospital days. Dexmedetomidine, or Presidex, is also effective, but side effects of bradycardia can limit its use, especially as we see patients that are hypothermic be more prone to bradycardia as well. The next strategy is neuromuscular blocking agents, which are highly effective at preventing shivering but confound the neurologic examination and may mask seizure. Patients need to be deeply sedated following train of four for this. The third issue to discuss is that hypothermia slows cardiac conduction, leading to bradycardia and QT prolongation, which can exacerbate underlying arrhythmias such as VT or VF. This can also be exacerbated, as I mentioned, by Presidex, which is one of the sedating medications that prevents shivering. There are comparable results with defibrillation during hypothermia as normothermia. The fourth issue with targeted temperature management is diuresis increases with hypothermia, potentially leading to electrolyte loss of potassium, magnesium, and phosphorus. Electrolytes need to be frequently monitored. Total body potassium may not actually be low due to cellular shifts, Thus, conservative replacement is recommended. At the University of Minnesota, we replete at a potassium of less than 3.0, while targeted temperature management is ongoing to avoid rebound hyperkalemia. We also check labs every six hours at minimum. The fifth issue is insulin resistance. So we need to keep a close eye on our patient's blood sugars and other metabolic markers. Dr. Bartos, do you have anything to add? Julie, I think you've done a great job of outlining the issues that come along with targeted temperature management. Looking at the trials of targeted temperature management, the one side effect and complication that becomes significant in the patients who receive hypothermia is really arrhythmia. And while it's not well described in the studies, generally that's interpreted to be bradycardia related to the cooling. And so bradycardia can be addressed in a number of different ways and is not necessarily an immediately life-threatening scenario that would require halting of the hypothermia as much as further treatment and an alternate plan. In some cases, it does require early rewarming or an alternate choice of temperature. The other issues, including bleeding, insulin resistance, diuresis, are all things that we see and are things that we can address if we need to. The bleeding issues tend to occur at colder temperatures, at least clinically, and so are not significant in the clinical trials that look at that comparing normothermic to hypothermic patients. Thanks, Dr. Bardos. Targeted temperature management continues to be a hotly discussed topic, and there is constant debate as to what temperature is most beneficial for cooling. The 2020 EHA guidelines for CPR and emergency cardiovascular care recommend prompt initiation of targeted temperature management for all patients who do not follow commands after return of spontaneous circulation. This is to ensure optimal functional and neurologic outcome. TTM between 32 and 36 Celsius for at least 24 hours is currently recommended for all cardiac rhythms in both out-of-hospital and in-hospital cardiac arrest. However, many uncertainties within the topic of targeted temperature management remain, including whether temperature should vary on the basis of 
patient characteristics, how long targeted temperature management should be maintained, and how quickly it should be started. When rewarming, most institutions target a rate of 0.25 to 0.5 Celsius per hour. Preclinical studies show loss of benefits of therapeutic hypothermia with a rate of rewarming greater than 0.5 Celsius per hour. Randomized trials have not shown improvement of outcomes when pre-hospital initiation of therapeutic hypothermia has been tried. Trials have shown conflicting evidence regarding outcomes in rate and rapidity of cooling. Clearly, we need further trials enrolling based on presenting neurologic injury and status to determine optimal management. Dr. Bardos, can you elaborate how you manage the nuances of targeted temperature management and how the newly published TTM2 trial has changed your management? Absolutely. That's a great question. It's probably the most hotly debated topic right now in the field of cardiac arrest. And despite being one of the best studied topics in the world of cardiac arrest, it still leaves many questions to be answered and future studies that are necessary. I think the most important thing to think about when we're talking about TTM, targeted temperature management as a treatment, not as a trial, is how we apply it to different patient populations. So the first thing I would point out is that the patient that Julie described here and our refractory cardiac arrest patients that receive eCPR, that's ECMO for CPR, are not included in these trials. They, these trials include patients who have ROSC in the field and generally exclude or do not have patients by virtue of that criteria that have eCPR. Therefore, you can't really use these trials to determine what we should do in that population. But if we first consider the population that the trials are describing, the population with ROSC in the field with an average of around 25 minutes of CPR or a median of 25 minutes of CPR, a lactate of six to seven on arrival uh, to the hospital. These patients have been examined through multiple trials over the course of the last couple decades. Those first trials that really sparked a desire and belief that this may be a useful therapy started in the early 2000s where patients that receive cooling, this is the HACA trial and Bernard trial, Patients that received cooling had significantly better survival compared to those that were not cooled. The criticism from those trials was that a lot of those patients that were not cooled had fever. And hence, this TTM trial was born, a 33 versus 36 degree trial, and looking to see, can you determine a difference between a tightly controlled 36 degree group that would not have fever versus uh, much deeper cooling at 33 degrees? And also keep in mind that when I say deep cooling, I mean deeper relatively because we cool people in the OR to 18 degrees for different surgeries. So 33 degrees is still quite warm by those surgical standards when we intentionally cool in that setting. But that said, 33 versus 36 degrees, most people probably have heard or read or remember that there was no difference between those two groups. So the next trial, a TTM2 trial comes along looking to see is it really 36 degrees that is the same as 33 or is it normal thermia? Because again, the goal was to prevent fever and 36 degrees is still very much a colder than normal temperature. So they compared essentially in the TTM2 trial, 33 degrees to normal thermia and they delivered normal thermia with aggressive fever management with a cutoff that was early so that they would be treating aggressively fevers. But also we have to remember that well, a little over 40% of the patients in the normal thermia group actually receive cooling devices in the TTM2 trial to maintain that temperature. So there is very much active treatment happening in that normal thermic group. These are not patients that were left to be at whatever temperature their body chose. They were actively controlled. And they compare that to 33 degrees. And obviously in the 33 degree group, the vast majority of people received a cooling device. Now, there are a few caveats to this study or a few things to consider. One caveat is that anytime you're doing a clinical trial, you have to, in most cases, randomize patients, and that requires a duration of time to randomize. So in the TTM2 trial, on average, from the cardiac arrest to randomization time was about two hours. That builds in a delay in the therapy. In addition, in all cooling trials, there is a delay to reach that goal temperature because it takes time to achieve that. And so that actual therapy of 33 degrees does not start at minute one. It actually starts somewhere in the seven to 10 hour range for this trial. 
And so this is really assessing two therapies that start with a significant delay. In addition, one caveat to the normal thermic group is that the patients were able to passively rewarm to that group. They were not actually warmed actively to normal thermia. They passively rewarmed, meaning that if a patient's body was significantly injured and was not able to rewarm to that temperature, they would not. They would actually have a longer temperature, a longer duration of time at a lower temperature. And on average, these patients arrived with a temperature of about 35 and a half degrees. So they were arriving with therapeutic hypothermia below the 36 degree cutoff that would have been used in the TTM trial. And they had that temperature for a period of hours, unless they were able to rewarm passively once randomized to the normal thermic group. And then again, compared to the, the cooled group. So what they showed in this trial is that effectively, there was no difference in outcomes between those two groups. And that's an important finding. This is a well-done, well-developed trial with good evidence to back it up and to develop it. So this is a useful result for what we do in the world of post-cardiac arrest care. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we should be rewarming patients. In fact, it didn't test whether we should rewarm patients to normothermia and leave them there. The last thing I would just mention, and I touched on it a bit ago, was the complications of cooling. There were no significant complications of cooling other than the arrhythmia with potential hemodynamic compromise. And again, that may be bradycardia, but that is not well described in the trial. So we have to keep that in mind and, and worry about that in patients receiving hypothermia, but we don't necessarily know the full ramifications of that. So now if we take these results, again, suggesting that normal thermia is sufficient in patients that are passively rewarmed to that temperature. Now we extrapolate that to the eCPR population with refractory cardiac arrest. And again, those patients were not included in this trial. So extrapolation is fraught with concern and some angst. That said, our patients on ECMO are by and large unable to passively rewarm. Their blood is circulated outside their body with the ECMO circuit. We can control the temperature using the ECMO circuit so we can very efficiently cool and rewarm, but the rewarming process on the circuit is an active process. So again, that is not studied in this trial. In addition, our patients arrive with an average lactic acid around 12 to 14 after an hour of CPR. And so that is drastically different than the patient population in the study. So as I think about hypothermia and targeted temperature management, using other smaller sub-studies or cohorts from different programs, Dr. Calloway has a very nice study where looking at the severity of injury from cardiac arrest in relationship to potential benefit from hypothermia, showing that those patients with more severe neurologic injury may actually benefit more from hypothermia than targeted temperature management at a lower temperature. Extrapolating that to our patients that have potentially very severe neurologic injury from a refractory cardiac arrest, I would suggest that if any population is going to benefit, it is probably ours, though well-designed studies are needed to really understand if there is a role for targeted temperature management in eCPR patients. But we still do not know the answer to that question. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Partos. This is an ongoing area of heavy research, and it's just one of these fascinating sagas that continues to unfold. And on the subject of hypothermia, really tying it in, I'm proud to say that I worked in the lab of Dr. Henry Halperin Hopkins, which is where actually Dr. Dimitri Inopoulos started off. And he did some really cool studies at the time where they took swine animals and induced PEA and basically immediately started hypothermia. And, you know, they showed this like remarkable neurological benefit. And obviously animal studies taking its humans is a little bit tricky and also you know, the hypothermia protocol that he used was instantaneous. So as soon as the arrest started, hypothermia was induced, which is not what we see on the field, as you talked about earlier. So some of the limitations of the inhuman studies. So they're actually currently working on, and I was working on this project as well, somehow trying to get hypothermia using some agents like, you know, different peptides to induce hypothermia or the effect of hypothermia without actually having to physically cool the animals and somehow potentially this may translate to humans and may help achieve getting the benefits of hypothermia without some of the costs that we just delineated. Yeah. So I think what you just pointed out is a very critical point. And certainly the work of Dr. Halpern is uh, world renowned and you're in a very good place there working with him. One of the issues of hypothermia is that it is a general full body treatment. And what we're really targeting, at least in the sense of our patient population in cardiac arrest is really neurologic impairment and neurologic injury. 
So to the extent that you can develop therapies that would take away the generalized treatment aspects of it and focus it on neurologic recovery and capitalizing on the recovery pathways and the survival pathways that are triggered by hypothermia in the brain specifically, that could lead to dramatic advances that would eliminate these potential side effects while still providing that benefit. And I think that's great work and I commend you for doing it. It kind of seems like providing hypothermia to patients is like giving people foxglove, but we still have to figure out what the digoxin of hypothermia is. That's exactly right. I mean, it's really a coarse treatment that we in the state of Minnesota see for, it seems like nine months a year, but at least maybe six months a year where everybody's a little hypothermic for a period of time. But really that's that coarse. You know, there are many miracle stories of people falling through the ice and being underwater, especially children for hours. And they can recover and survive. And certainly, like I mentioned, we use very deep hypothermia in the OR for certain aortic cases. So these treatments exist and have existed as long as the earth has existed, at least to the extent that it could become cold. And the problem is that we've never really gotten to, despite many trials and many studies in animal models, preclinical studies, looking at the potential mechanisms. The mechanisms are so broad. There are multiple different pathways activated by hypothermia. And it takes a lot of effort to pin down which pathways and which specific molecular mechanisms are the critical mechanisms for the beneficial effects on hypothermia. And the chances are there are multiple that are actively protecting the cells at the same time. And we're going to need multiple agents to fully reproduce the benefits of hypothermia. But I guess the course and the effort is completely worth it in the long run, if you can develop a therapy that would accomplish this task. That's perfect. Thank you, Dr. Bartos. And I agree, like working with Dr. Halpern has been an absolute mind-blowing experience. And speaking of which, our recent work that we did with PEA, we wanted to demonstrate the ability of cause of a acute coronary occlusion directly leading to postal selective activity. And we were able to publish recently, JA, how we could induce an LED infarct by using a balloon occlusion and in the right animal cause pulses electrical activity almost instantaneously within one to two minutes after balloon occlusion, serving as a model for pulse electrical activity in ischemia. Obviously not going into that here, but, you know, selection of appropriate patients to pursue revascularization and consideration for the timing of revascularization in patients with recent cardiac arrest is also very important and also being actively investigated. Coronary artery disease is common in the setting of cardiac arrest with up to 96% of patients with STEMI on post-resuscitation ECG and up to 85% of refractory out-of-hospital VEP or VT arrests. Yeah, you know, for everyone, I definitely want to give a big shout out to Dan Ambender et al. And, uh, you know, the last author, Dr. Henry Heltman, said Jaha, July 2021. And I remember for, I don't know, months or years, how, how long it was that Dan was running into the lab to cannulate VA ECMO in pigs and balloon occlude and study all the effects of this. So, you know, but I, I do think this is a really important project because a lot of us think, you know, if it's a non-shockable rhythm, maybe it goes to the medical ICU. If it's a shockable rhythm, maybe it goes to the coronary, you know, to the cath lab and the CCU. But, you know, clearly that delineation is not fixed and coronary ischemia is one of the H's and T's, of course. So a really important study there. And, it, and it's important to think about this because when significant CAD is observed during post-ROS coronary angiography, revascularization can be achieved safely in most cases and generally improve survival. And further, successful PCI is associated with improved survival and neurological outcomes in multiple observational studies. So, you know, guidelines recommend emergent coronary angiography for patients with ST segment elevation on the post-ROS ECG. But still, the role or timing of revascularization post-rosting patients without a STEMI or shock is unclear. And I think this is really just from personal experience, an area of great discomfort for myself and an area where I see the greatest heterogeneity in care. The role of CAD in cardiac arrest with non-shackle rhythms is not completely known. But again, Dan's work is helping to clarify this. So Julie, what's your approach over there at the University of Minnesota? In our patients at the University of Minnesota, we typically place them on VA ECMO and then perform coronary angiogram and intervention if indicated once they are stabilized on the circuit. As we discussed, our patient underwent immediate PCI with drug-eluting stent to the proximal LAD after being placed on VA ECMO. Her other arteries looked angiographically normal. We will have a dedicated episode on coronary revascularization and cardiogenic shock later in this series. But Dr. Bartos, is there anything you would like to add with regards to decision for and timing of post-arrest coronary angiography? 
Yeah, this is the second most hotly debated topic in the world of cardiac arrest right now. And I think it's a very useful topic because of the debate. The debate helps us learn. So if I may take one step aside, because there was a, a very important point made about where these patients go with VF versus PA and who needs what. And I think that's important in the respect of coronary disease, but it's also a concept in the world of post-arrest care. I think that what we're seeing is that there are distinctions, absolutely, between different types of cardiac arrest in their etiologies and the treatments they need. But the fundamentals of neurologic injury, the pan system organ failure, are similar. And what you really need for the care of these patients is people who are expert in the care of patients that are post-cardiac arrest. And so I think those distinctions between the MICU and the SICU and the cardiac ICU and all those things fall away to just needing experts in the care of these patients. And I think this is where cardiac intensivists and cardiology critical care really finds a sweet spot in addition to care of cardiogenic shock and heart failure and all these other cardiology etiologies and the patients. Cardiac arrest bridges so many aspects of cardiology with neurocritical care and medical critical care and complex vent management and trauma that really having people who are trained in critical care and cardiology is a very large advantage. So I think this is a great field for people who are interested in cardiology and critical care. Now to the point of the coronary arteries. So there are a number of trials looking at this as well. And I think you mentioned the previous cohort studies and we have a scientific statement published a couple of years ago that really put all this together in terms of summary of the previous trials. But there are trials that have come out since that scientific statement that have caused the controversy about coronary artery disease. And I think people had focused on shockable rhythms because the cohorts that had included shockable rhythms showed a high prevalence of coronary artery disease. And if you think about any treatment that's really meant to reverse an etiology, if the etiology isn't there, there's no benefit of the treatment. And so the patients who are most likely to benefit from coronary angiography and subsequent potential for PCI would be those that are most likely to have a culprit lesion that needs to be reversed or revascularized. Those patients, as was mentioned, are STEMI patients, people that are post-arrest but have ST elevation on their EKG after they achieve ROSC. Those patients are treated by guidelines and by most practitioners, essentially like a standard STEMI patient. They come in, they go emergently to the cath lab, and they are revascularized. Patients without STEMI on the EKG after they achieve ROSC are much more controversial. And there are two trials, the COAC trial and the Tomahawk trial, that look at that population, people without ST elevation on their EKG after they achieve ROS after a cardiac arrest. Now, the most recent trial, the Tomahawk trial, confirmed largely the findings of the COAC trial. Essentially, delayed versus immediate revascular coronary angiography and revascularization as indicated did not have a significant benefit. But very importantly, they excluded patients with STEMI on their EKG and those with cardiogenic shock. So they excluded two high-risk groups which really brings down the likelihood of having a culprit lesion that needs to be revascularized. They were certainly present in those populations, but they were not 100% of the patients. They weren't even the majority of the patients that had culprit lesions. So the trials are looking at a population which we see every day, the population of people without ST elevation on that EKG, but they suggest that population, if completely hemodynamically stable and otherwise doing well, or don't have ST elevation on their EKG, that you can wait and delay their angiography. Now, that would be something similar to treatment for an N-STEMI. So really what we're seeing is phenotype of STEMI versus N-STEMI being applied to cardiac arrest, and it seems to apply relatively similarly. But there is still much more to know. Importantly, then again, thinking about this population compared to the ECPR population, so ECPR can be applied to any type of cardiac arrest in any situation. If it's applied to shockable patients with shock rhythm, like ours at the University of Minnesota, what we see is 85% of those patients having significant coronary artery disease, evenly split roughly between one, two, and three vessel disease. So some very complex disease. Syntax score around 29 on average in our published study. So these patients have complex coronary disease with a high likelihood of culprit lesions, acute thrombotic lesions in over 60% of those patients. 
We've done it in some cases, but it's very challenging to fix that coronary disease without hemodynamic stability so that you can do all the things you need to do from an interventional technique perspective. So ongoing CPR, yes, you can fix some lesions and maybe you could get some of those patients back. We don't have that trial actually to take them with ongoing CPR and revascularize and see if we can get those patients back and improve outcomes. But fixing these complex lesions and multivessel disease is very challenging in that situation. And the ECMO part of eCPR provides that hemodynamic stability so that you have the scenario and the, the setting to do some complex coronary intervention. And so there's that benefit for those patients as well. But those patients, again, with eCPR are getting CPR for an hour. They have a lactate 12 to 14. As compared to the patients in the Tomahawk trial, they were getting CPR on average for about 15 minutes and had a lactate around five with a pH of 7.2. So those patients are a very different group and we need to separate that from eCPR. We don't know, fundamentally, we don't know what the role of coronary angiography and PCI is in eCPR. But as you mentioned, Julie, in our protocol, those all of our patients that come in that have an underlying presenting shockable rhythm as part of our eCPR program are getting coronary angiography and PCI and a very high likelihood of having a lesion that we need to fix. So I think if we think again about eCPR population, I'm still a proponent that those patients, even without the data yet to demonstrate it, but no data contradicting the idea, I'm a proponent of those folks going directly to coronary angiography after you stabilize their hemodynamics and revascularizing what you can. Thanks so much for that, Dr. Bartos, and it's particularly that summary with the patient's who have undergone eCPR and your encouragement to take them to the lab. It's very interesting to hear your perspective. Coronary angiography in this patient population in general is something that comes up almost every day in the cath lab. And there is so much to learn about how to guide us through the right therapy, the right intervention, and the right timing for our patients, particularly, as you mentioned, in patients without post-rostemi on ECG. But let's switch gears here. And in CardioNerd's parlance, we know the eCPR to mean expert CardioNerd perspective and review. And those go along beautifully with our case report series. But now we're going to be focusing on the eCPR that the rest of the world uses. And that's VA ECMO with patients who required CPR. So let's discuss the physiologic basis of eCPR and the recent data supporting its use, given that the recently published arrest trial is out from the University of Minnesota by Dr. Dimitri Yiannopoulos. You, yourself, Dr. Jason Bartos, and Dr. Ganesh Ravindran. eCPR has been at the U for five years, and the arrest trial is the first RCT of eCPR published in The Lancet in November 2020. The trial is quite impressive, both in its app naming and encouraging results. Julie, would you mind reviewing the trial here since it happened right in your backyard? With pleasure, Dan. The arrest trial is a landmark trial out of the University of Minnesota. The trial enrolled 30 out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients with refractory VT or VF, defined as three failed shocks in the field, and ongoing CPR, and randomized them to usual ACLS versus VA ECMO placement in the University of Minnesota cath lab and subsequent coronary angiogram. All patients received CPR with a Lucas device. The plan was for 77 patients in the trial total. However, after first analysis, the trial was stopped early due to reaching pre-specified benefit points. The results were pretty dramatic. There was a large improvement in the primary outcome of survival to hospital discharge, 43% in the VA ECMO arm versus 7% in the ACLS-only arm. Survival to three and six months was also better in the VA ECMO CPR group. 43% versus 0% in the ACLS usual arm, p-value of 0.006. Based on this study, we should start thinking about advanced mechanical support in cardiac arrest if the patient has greater than three shocks and there is still no perfusing rhythm, or if there is greater than 15 to 20 minutes of ongoing CPR. The likelihood of ROSC in the field drops significantly after 20 to 25 minutes, at which point VA ECMO should be considered. The biggest predictor of outcome in cardiac arrest is time. Based on a CERC study published out of the University of Minnesota in 2020, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest brought to the University of Minnesota cath lab within 30 minutes of their cardiac arrest had a greater than 90% chance of survival. Patient survival rates drop dramatically over elapsed time. All eCPR patients brought to the University of Minnesota within 20 to 29 minutes of CPR survived with neurologically favorable status. If ECMO is placed greater than 90 minutes after arrest, survival is poor. 
approximately only 10 to 15% survival rate. In conclusion, eCPR is associated with improved neurologically favorable survival at all CPR durations less than 60 minutes, despite severe progressive metabolic derangement. However, CPR duration remains a critical determinant of survival. Dr. Bartos, I think in a previous podcast, you had mentioned an odds ratio of 21 in favor of ECMO and eCPR, and the fact that you suspected the entire resuscitation pathway and not just ECMO. Is there anything you would like to add here? I think what you point out there is really important, which is that all of our results, both in the arrest trial and in our previously published cohorts, are in the system of eCPR. ECMO itself, the machine, does a great job of providing hemodynamic stability. And again, it provides the foundation on which you can build the rest of treatment and care. It does not replace any other portion of the the care pathway. So if you think about the chain of survival as starting with recognition of a cardiac arrest, then activation of 911, all of the pre-hospital care, ACLS, and rapid delivery to the hospital, and then post-arrest care, including cath lab and ICU care, ECMO is now a piece with the arrest trial results. ECMO is now a link in that chain, but the rest of the chain is still absolutely critical. And it is important to keep in mind that part of the building of an eCPR program is the strengthening of all of those other links, because these patients are the sickest of the cardiac arrest patients who are already an incredibly sick population. If the links in the chain did not do well or failed in certain circumstances with previous populations where they achieved ROSC in the field, they will only become more apparent when you're dealing with a a refractory arrest patient. So it is really important that incumbent upon everybody involved in the program to reach out to the pre-hospital side, to stay connected to the in-hospital side and the post-arrest care and even the clinic to make sure that the entire continuum of care is established and reinforced for these patients. Now, the arrest trial in particular was a multi-EMS system trial which is important. It wasn't just one EMS system. It it suggests that there's some generalizability across EMS systems, but it was one hospital. It was a single center from the perspective of cannulation and post-arrest care, and that was our center. And so generalizability is important. I think the system we built at the University of Minnesota can be exported. Other people can build our system. There's nothing magical about the ground that the University of Minnesota is built on. However, It needs to be built intentionally and every system and every state and every city will have unique circumstances that require some customization of that system to ensure the best outcomes for their patients to build it into their logistical circumstances. So as you look at those results and you say 43% survival versus 7% survival at discharge, those differences are great and they are very consistent with what we had seen with our previous cohort study. So it was very reassuring to us that we could actually do this also in a randomized controlled trial, looking at the two groups. And we weren't cherry picking patients for our previous cohort studies that we truly were giving them the care that we would give any of our refractory cardiac arrest patients who fit those criteria. We still need to keep in mind that it isn't immediately generalizable throughout the nation. It isn't something where we can just plop it down in any hospital and have it take root. We really do need to build and those places need to build those programs. Now, as you also mentioned, one of the most critical components and probably the most critical component in terms of predicting survival is time from initiation of professional CPR to delivery of ECMO and initiation of flow through ECMO. And that's what that circulation paper showed is that if patients get to us within 30 minutes, we have at that point and still actually 100% survival. We have yet to lose a patient who gets to us within 30 minutes, but very few patients do. The logistics of mobilizing from the scene extricating them from the scene and and transporting them to our hospital require more than 30 minutes in almost all cases. So that group is very small, but after that point, we lose 25% with every 10 minutes. And that's compared to the ELPS trial, which was the amiodarone arm of the ELPS trial, the trial comparing amiodarone to lidocaine to placebo in patients who were refractory to at least one shock. And that was a very well done trial, which is why we use that amiodarone arm of that trial as a comparison group saying this is standard, if not better than standard ACLS and these well-trained paramedics that are part of this trial. And when you compare that group who had at best around 65% survival with people that received zero to nine minutes of CPR, and they lost 17% of people with every 10 minutes thereafter, we were significantly 
more able to provide good outcomes to our patients, significantly higher survival in the eCPR arm than in that amiodarone arm of the ALPS trial. And we had survivors that had much longer durations of CPR instead of having the last survivor at less than 40 minutes of CPR in the ALPS trial, we had survivors all the way out to 98 minutes of CPR granted with that decrement in survival over time. So eCPR is a powerful tool. It is a very important tool to have for these refractory patients. And in many patients, it's the only way they have a chance to survive. But at the same time, we need to keep in mind the entire system at play and make sure that we don't just focus on the pump. It is really about the entire system involved. Thank you, Dr. Bardos. And congratulations for all of the incredible success for your resuscitation program and all the work that you're doing at the University of Minnesota. These are truly very impressive results. But as you've been getting at, they're the product of significant investment and resources, training and maintaining a consistent and high quality and high volume system of care that you have there at the University of Minnesota. I agree with your concerns about the generalizability, cost efficiency, and maintaining strict patient selection. So let's talk a little bit about generalizability. In urban settings around the world, it's often difficult for patients to be treated in the hospital within 45 to 60 minutes of cardiac arrest, even with a load-and-go strategy. This is a very good point, Yav, and exactly why Paris designed a system in 2011 where ECMO was available to treat patients on the seat. The eCPR team was initially alerted and put on standby in cases of witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest for patients under the age of 70, and the team could be requested after 10 minutes of unsuccessful ACLS. eCPR was implemented early and in the field after just 20 minutes of CPR with an AED. Again, time is the most important factor. The team is secondarily canceled if ROSC occurs during ACLS or if there's no indication for eCPR. With this strategy, Patients previously too far to reach an eCPR center have become eligible, thus allowing greater equity of care. Dr. Bartos, what are your thoughts on the added value and challenges of instituting eCPR in the field? As an interventional cardiologist, it's hard to step outside of the cath lab to do certain procedures where you're comfortable, you have your team, you have your supplies, and you're used to operating. It's that much harder to go outside the door of the hospital. And paramedics do this every day in inclement circumstances, and they have a set number of procedures that they're doing in the pre-hospital setting. But eCPR is more complex than those procedures, both in its steps and its details of the procedure, but also in the need for sterility and protection from the elements. And so it's a significant challenge. And I commend, as I have repeatedly in the past as well, I commend the the folks in Paris and others who have tried pre-hospital ECMO and eCPR. It is a distinct challenge. And they have successfully cannulated many patients. So they are definitely to be commended for that. What we see in their published studies is that their results have not reached that point of 40% survival. And they'll be the first ones to say that they're continuing to evolve and improve their program as they work through the logistical hurdles of doing this in the pre-hospital setting. And as you mentioned, also, time is so critical for these patients. So in the setting where you cannot reach the hospital with your patient, pre-hospital ECMO is the ideal circumstance. We at the University of Minnesota and in the Twin City area have developed the Minnesota Mobile Resuscitation Program, where we reach out and we now cannulate patients in emergency departments. So still in a hospital setting, but emergency departments around our hospital with a centralized eCPR team to reach those patients that much faster. If they can rendezvous with our team at a hospital closer to them, then we can cut a few minutes off. Now, what we saw in the first four months of that program is that we essentially gathered about two years worth of patients in the four-month period, which tells you that we really, instead of decreasing the time to ECMO, which we did for some, but what we did primarily was actually extend our reach. We had patients coming from further away than we had before because now they could rendezvous at the closer center. And so our time to ECMO decreased by only eight minutes compared to our previous program, even though we have now cut the distance in half, but that's expanded our reach, which is also an important goal. It brings up the question of development of multiple eCPR centers and how you work the logistics 
of a statewide or nationwide eCPR program. Because the more centers you have, the more you could actually decrease the time to ECMO rather than just extending the reach. That said, the next step of our program is to go to the patient's doorstep with a specially designed truck, which is essentially a mobile cath lab, which provides the benefits of both. So it now increases the comfort of those of us who work in a hospital-based setting because the hospital-based setting is moving with us and we can still have our supplies and our resources and our tools and our team right there with us. But we're also decreasing the time to eCPR and time to ECMO for these patients with cardiac arrest by bringing that all to them. We don't have data yet to demonstrate the outcomes of that, but we're very much looking forward to it. And it's exciting to hopefully be able to provide this much faster. As I mentioned, for patients that get to us within 30 minutes, we have yet to lose a patient. The survival is still 100%. And for that to be even possible, even if we got to 75% survival for these refractory cardiac arrest patients that really essentially have 0% or 7% in the trial chance of survival to hospital discharge, that'll be an impressive and exciting moment to see that we can provide that and really move the dial that far towards survival. I mean, it is unbelievable thinking about a mobile cath lab. And I, it's like, oh, I almost can't imagine, but Julie has been raving about how cool it is. And so I'm excited to see the implementation of it, how it does bring this therapy to patients in need in the right time. So, you know, instituting VA ECMO safely and expeditiously for the appropriately selected patients is a tall order, but it sounds like you all are taking a good crack at it. But even when everything does go right, we are far from celebrating and the patient just has begun the fight of their life. So, Julie, once a patient is on VA ECMO and has coronary angiography with possible PCI, where do we go from there? What's the next steps? Very good question. After leaving the cath lab, our ICU ECMO service owns the patient as a primary service through discharge. The patients undergo pan CT scan, head, chest, abdomen, pelvis, cooling, rewarming, continuous video EEG, and broad spectrum antibiotics as aspiration during peri-arrest is common. We then wait a week before we start prognosticating with assistance from neurology, cardiac surgery, and other consulting teams. Aggressive care at every level is required for these patients to survive, given their numerous critical care issues. They are often trauma on top of cardiac arrest on top of STEMI. Like I said, we pan-scan CT head chest, abdomen, pelvis on our patients after ECMO is placed, but it remains to be determined if before or after cath lab and cannulation is beneficial. Pan scanning our patients helps identify trauma like pneumoperitoneum or pneumothorax, etc. And trauma from CPR, inotropes, pressors all suggest poor prognosis. And often care is arguably withdrawn too early as patients do poorly on an eyeball test. These patients, again, require an aggressive team willing to see them through this period. Dr. Bartos, anything to add? Yeah, I think that's a great point and a, a good delineation of the sort of pathway that these patients go through. Fundamentally, still to this day with post-cardiac arrest patients, the most common cause of death is withdrawal of care in the ICU. And it's entirely possible that the vast majority of those patients have a very legitimate reason for withdrawal of care. But the concern is that some of that withdrawal may happen early. And by early, I mean before the patient has a chance to demonstrate that they may be a survivor. The issue is that we don't know how long that is. And so as you mentioned, Julie, we have, for our program, instituted a one-week rule, effectively, where we wait at least a week before we start prognosticating and before we start telling the family whether things look good or bad. It doesn't mean that we don't talk to families, and it doesn't mean that we don't share results with them. We certainly do. And if the family came to us and said, or the surrogate decision maker, doesn't have to be family, the surrogate decision maker came to us and said that the patient never would want this and they would want it to stop, then obviously we do. That said, if we don't have those definitive criteria or that definitive guidance to decide the path forward, then we wait and give them a chance to show us signs of how they may do. There is hope from our data that we may be able to describe earlier neuroprognostication criteria that we can use to provide guidance to families and probably stop care earlier in certain cases where certain devastating or clear 
markers of injury and catastrophic injury have occurred. But it's still one of the most difficult things we do to understand and put together the full picture of the patient and talk to families about it with any level of certainty in those first few days, because we just don't know. And what we've seen is that the recovery is very long for these patients. So when we've given them a week, patients have often taken that full week. About half of the patients are following commands within a week. But if we look at only our survivors, the other half take much longer. And so we can have patients up to two weeks who are in a coma that entire time and then start to follow commands later. And it really makes us all wonder when we really know that somebody's going to do poorly. It's a dramatic challenge and we need a lot more study and a lot more data to help guide that process in particular. Thank you, Dr. Bartos, for those comments. And yeah, you know, the initial resuscitation effort, plus or minus the use of VA ECMO, is just the beginning of a long road ahead, as we all outlined. So with this in mind, Julie, let's get back to our patient. How did she do? Our patient did well on VA ECMO and was decannulated after four days with post-decannulation echocardiogram showing an EF of 55 to 60% from initially 10 to 20%. She was extubated later that week and eventually discharged on goal-directed medical therapy. Care for post-cardiac arrest patients is resource-intensive and requires coordination from multiple specialties. Facilities that manage over 50 post-cardiac arrest patients per year have better outcomes when compared to those that care for fewer. Centers that have cardiac catheterization capabilities demonstrate better outcomes in this population as well. Our patients, including this one, even see Dr. Jason Bartos and other critical care staff in clinic for follow-up. This being said, I would like to give a shout out to all of the physicians, consultants, fellows, APPs, cath lab nurses and techs, ICU nurses, perfusionists and RT, EMS, paramedics, our mobile ECMO team, PT, OT, and speech and language pathology that help make our program possible. It truly takes a village. Dr. Bartos, what makes your heart flutter about caring for the critically ill in the cardiac ICU? So many things make my heart flutter when dealing with this patient population. I think the challenge of it is absolutely phenomenal and is really enticing to people like us who work in the cath lab, in the critical care setting, who really love physiology and love to think about how the body works and how the human is built from the body. I think the complexities of the social dynamics and working with families in this situation is incredibly challenging, but incredibly rewarding. You are, as a person taking care of the, their loved one, you are their link to everything they know about the situation in that circumstance. There is no place they can Google or look up uh, online information about this population. They may find things that we need to talk about, but Fundamentally, the source of knowledge comes from us and our experience and the particular circumstances of that person's story and cardiac arrest. And on top of that, those family members are so gracious and oftentimes are heroes in this story. And I will never forget one of the first patients that we had come through our program who was driving down the freeway at a, a rate of speed around 60, 65 miles an hour and had a cardiac arrest while he was driving. His wife, grabbed the steering wheel and drove them off the road, off of the freeway at a high rate of speed because he had passed out and was out of control in the vehicle. She had the presence of mind to drive them off the road, stop the vehicle in the median or in the, the ditch, jump out of the vehicle, pull him out of the driver's seat and do CPR. That person deserves a medal. That person is a hero. And I get to work with those people every single day and try to take care of their loved ones. And to me, you can't beat that. And then at the end, the whole entire continuum of care, it is incredibly rewarding to see these people come back in clinic, living a full, normal, happy life, back with their family, back with their kids, back on vacation and work and doing everything that they loved before. And actually oftentimes having a new lease on life and a new perspective on life that they've actually made some improvements they've been meaning to make before. So in some ways, and in some people, not everybody, but in some people, their cardiac arrest drastically improved their life by giving them this perspective that they needed to sort of get on the ball and actually do some of the things they had been meaning to do. And I think it's incredibly rewarding to see the humanity in that. And in addition to the science and the physiology and all the things that I love nerding out about all the time, you get to see the best of humanity in these circumstances as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Bardos. That 
patient's family member truly is a hero. And I think the case that Julie and you presented really highlights the amazing work that you're doing at University of Minnesota, the day-to-day care, but also the bigger picture and the research that's really driving the field forward. Today, we learned so much about cardiac arrest, post-arrest care, and eCPR. This patient's a great example of the potential and the future of the field. And I just wanted to thank you again for joining us here. It's very much my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great discussion, and I really appreciate it. I'd just like to add for the cardiac nerds that no animals were harmed in the production of this podcast. Thanks, Zavit.